0: You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland.
1: What is forgiveness exactly? Forgiveness, aphesis in Greek, is a commercial term. It's a money term. It's an accounting term, in a sense, a term that comes from the business world. It has to do with someone who is bound by the obligation to pay a debt, even legally, legally. And then someone releases them from that obligation. They didn't make the payment. They couldn't make the payment. But the one who is owed the money, who could demand the payment, says, I'm going to release you.
0: Financial debt is all too commonly known to many households. It's a struggle that most people experience at some point in their life and that many just don't know how to handle. Some people live with it for their entire lives, passing it on to their children. In today's message, Pastor Tom teaches us about how because of our sin, we are indebted to God. The Bible teaches us that the payment for sin is death. However, God offers us forgiveness for our sins, but only because He's willing to pay the price Himself. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message. Yes, I am trying to convert you.
1: God is the one who does the work of regeneration and that he commands us to be converted. Studying conversion is very, very important so we can understand what God has done. In 1 Peter 1.3, it says that God caused you to be born again. It's not you that causes yourself to be born again. God does that work. God has to give and grant life. You cannot grant life to yourself. He has to grant life and eyes to see before you even have the power to believe and repent. We're looking now in this series on the human side of conversion. Before that happens, the split second, so to say, before that happens, God has to do an operation on your mind and your heart to change you, or you would never seek for God. It says in 1 Corinthians that a natural man cannot even receive the things of the Spirit of God. It doesn't even make any sense to him. It takes God's work on your life in order to do that. But the command to repent and the command to believe is given to you. So you need to listen with ears, and when if you don't think you're understanding, you need to ask God, help me to hear, to understand what you're saying to me, that I may be truly converted. So we've been studying the components of conversion. Again, I'll say conversion is the human side of salvation. We repent, we believe, but behind that is the divine side called regeneration or being born again. It is God who has to grant life inwardly. God is the one who causes us to be born again so our faith can emerge that instant that we're born again. And so conversion is a beautiful thing. Many of you, hopefully most of you, I would that all of you are converted. That you have a conversion, a true conversion to Jesus Christ. That you're not going to be one of the ones cast out into the outer darkness. That you're going to realize on that day what a fool you were. That you were given an opportunity for everything and you turned it down. And by the way, when you sit and do nothing, you're turning it down. You have to respond to the message. God demands that you respond to the message. You have to hear and you have to make your own personal decision. And if you feel it's not right in your mind, you have to beg God, make this clear to me. 1 Timothy 2.4 says God desires all men to be saved. He's reaching out with the gospel to all men. He knows that men are stubborn and they're not going to respond. And so he does his special work on the inside. We're going to see that today. These components of conversion are so important because Christianity is so mixed in with everything else, people don't even know what it is anymore to have a true conversion. And so I think it really is worth our time and study to have gone through conversion in detail as we have done. Turn again in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and again, we'll read the text. It's just verses 37 through 41, but... They reveal this mass conversion of Jews to Christianity. It wasn't even called Christianity then, but it was a true conversion. And as you're studying it, thinking about it, think about yourself and think about how you present the gospel to others and what you expect of sinners when you're talking to them. Verse 37 of Acts 2. Now, when they heard this, that's that long sermon about Jesus Christ that Peter had preached. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? That's the big question, isn't it? And Peter said to him, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord, our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls, added to the church, that is. So the text obviously presents these components of biblical conversion— A little bit of review for you if you hadn't heard the earlier messages. Component number one of conversion is gospel preaching or the presentation of the message about Jesus Christ. There has to be a word presentation about Jesus Christ. And this is uh, clear from the context. Peter's sermon in the previous verses penetrated deep with inside those Jews as they realized they'd crucified their king, their Messiah, It changed their minds, and as it changed their minds, it changed the purpose and the direction of their life, and it brought them to confess this Jesus of Nazareth was a long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel. And so they were brought to faith. Again, going behind the scenes to see what God was doing, which is not presented in Acts 2, James chapter 1 and verse 18 reminds us that God is the one who brings us forth to saving faith by the word of truth. It's the word of truth that brings us to saving faith. And so God was doing that through the preaching of the word. Now, there may have been many more than 3,000 that were there that rejected this message. But in 3,000, God so worked that they would bring forth a faith. Component number two, also review, is conviction of sins. So many people are coming to Jesus these days, but they're coming to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They're coming to Jesus to make them feel better about themselves or to get rich or to have health. If you come to Jesus for that reason, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. You don't really have a relationship with God yet. You've received bad teaching, false Christianity. I was in it for the first 18 years of my life. It's just a false kind of Christianity, not the truth. And it's out there in abundance. You have to be convinced that you are in need of Christ. And it so humbles you that you almost literally cry out, please save me. What must I do to be saved? Jesus, I need you. I see that I'm ruined without you. I see the eternal danger without you. I don't think there's anything good inside of me that I'm going to present myself to you. It's you. It's all you. It's not me. That's a lowering of self, not a raising of self. You lower yourself, you esteem Christ, you come as a beggar to Christ and say, I realize I'm ruined, that you would actually be right to destroy me. And you come to that point and you realize, it's not about whether I feel good enough, just save me and deliver me from eternal destruction. There are many people who come to church and come to Christ not for those reasons, and they're not saved. You need to know in your heart the depravity of yourself and beg for salvation. Component number three of conversion. Then is genuine repentance, feeling the sting of sin, your sin, not someone else's sin, not how someone else treated you, how you treated God. Feeling the sting of that, then what you say is, God, I want to believe. And you turn away from your life. Your life is going this direction. Your life is being lived for another God or for another religion or for you or for some other purpose, money, fame. Maybe it's just comfort and ease. And you realize that's not the right purpose for life. To get an education, grow up, make a name for yourself, that's a false god. That's a golden cow. And you realize i got to turn away from sin. I need a radical change in my life. Not a little adjustment, not a little bit of adding religion to my life, but a complete surrender of my life to Christ. Repentance and conversion are so closely related, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot be converted without a genuine repentance, a genuine changing of mind. And then there's the fourth component that we talked about last time, and that is the sign of water baptism. And we took time with this because baptism has been so corrupted by the church through the centuries, and yet it's so simple. It's so direct. The New Testament makes it clear that there's a new covenant, and baptism goes with a new covenant, not the old covenant. You already be baptized after you become a believer. You come to the point where you repent, and then when you repent, then you're qualified to get baptized. You're not baptized because of your parents' faith. You're not baptized because of your parents' prayer or because of Christendom or anything like that. That makes a lot of people baptized that aren't even saved. And that's not the purpose of baptism. Others take baptism and they say, you have to go through the water to be saved, and they misread this text as if the water itself somehow has some properties that can save you. Water baptism does not save you. It's the symbol of salvation, right? It's the symbol of conversion, and it's a wonderful symbol for conversion. It shows the washing away of sins, not by the water, but by the blood of Christ. It shows the old life has died and has been raised to new life. Now you come out of the waters of baptism a new person. It's such a clear and simple symbol, it's hard to believe it's been so corrupted by the church. But if you've not been baptized, you need to be baptized to be obedient to your Lord and Savior who told you, repent and be baptized. It's a very clear command. Everyone back there who was converted obeyed Jesus and were baptized. They wouldn't even let them into the church if they wouldn't receive a water baptism. Then and only then were they added and joined to the church, as you clearly he demonstrated here as well. Today, now, we're going to talk about a, a couple more components of conversion, and these components are the blessings of conversion. All of that is the hard part. That's the hard thing to listen to that our society does not want to hear. Here's the part that people like to talk about, but please remember, when we get to the blessings of conversion, you can't have those. You're not allowed to have those. Those are withheld from you. God does not give those to you. He's going to keep those from people who don't go through the conviction of sin, the hearing of the word of God, the conviction of sin, the repentance. That's what is needed. You go through that, then the blessings are yours, right? And so you can rejoice in those blessings if they're yours. Component number five, write it down. Stay with me now. Component number five, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. In the middle part of verse 38 for the forgiveness of your sins. Beloved, please don't ever let such common words in the Bible bore you. Don't gloss such a marvelous reality. Ponder it instead, would you? Forgiveness of sins is a most beautiful reality. It is at the heart of our Christian experience. Forgiveness of sins is built into the very fabric of our relationship with God. There is no relationship with God other than being an enemy if you don't have forgiveness of sin. There's no way to be right with God apart from God forgiving you for the wrongs you have done against him. Christianity is unique in that, in that you have violated God. You are not right with God. You cannot earn your way back to God. You cannot do the five pillars of Islam or the seven sacraments of Catholicism or any other religion. They will not help you. The only way you're going to be right with God is if God is willing to forgive you. You're actually just doomed in and of yourself. There's no hope for you or for me. And Christianity is unique in that. It paints the bleakest picture of humanity that there is. By the way, that ought to tell you that it's from God, because if we were tickling ears, right, we'd be telling everybody how wonderful they are. And by the way, would you like to donate money? Right. That's how false religion works. Come feel good about yourself, and by the way, we could use a little more money. That's how false religion functions in the world. You'd think people have enough discernment for that. If we're telling you you're terrible people, that's a message from God because who's going to come and stay for that? Except true believers that know in their own conscience it's true, right? You're not a good person. Next to other people, that's fine. That's not the standard. The standard is the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ himself. How does your life measure up to him? You don't want to go there. God is eternally and persistently holy. And there is no way to be right with God except through forgiveness of sins. The holiness of God means that God hates sin. It means he never mixes with sin. It means that when sin is in his presence, he casts it out. And you and I, beloved, are sinners. God hates the sin. He has determined at the right time to destroy sin. People want to know, why is there evil in the world? There's evil only in the world for a while. God will eventually destroy it. Over and over, we see little, little executions of judgment against sin, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or the giant one with the flood or whether God strikes someone down dead because of their sin. But God executes vengeance. In fact, he does it so much, he says, don't take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. Those who have perverted his ways, he takes note of them. Those who suppress His word and His truth, He knows who does that. Those who have ignored His majesty and glory, He knows that. He never treats sin lightly. God is a fearsome God. And anyone who thinks that their sin is a small thing knows nothing about what it will be like to try to stand as a sinner in the presence of a God like that. In Romans 1, there's such a list of sins. Verses 28 and following, it says just as the Gentiles did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Does that sound like our society? We're not going to acknowledge God any longer, right? God then gave them over to a depraved mind. Does that not sound like our society? To do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy. Boy, that describes our society. Murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips slanders haters of god insolent arrogant boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents without understanding untrustworthy unloving they always talk about love out there they don't have love unmerciful they never have mercy against those they disagree with Prior to that, even talks about the disgusting nature of homosexuality and how that is the quintessential example of people throwing off the knowledge of God. They can't even figure out their own gender. They can't even figure out their own body. They're so rebellious towards God in their own being, they cast God off. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And why did he say that? Do not be deceived. Because there's always people that want to hang on to their sin and say they have a relationship with God. You can't do that. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That describes some of the transgender stuff today. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. You don't need anyone to interpret that for you. Do not be deceived. If that is your life, that is your lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. God will not grant you entrance. With so much sin in each person's life, forgiveness is the only hope. Forgiveness of sins is a blessed and wonderful hope. Why do you think Jesus taught his disciples when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven. And then it gets to that part. Forgive us our what? Debts as we forgive our debtors, right? It's no surprise Peter emphasizes right here in the response forgiveness of sins. The first blessing of conversion. You may be afraid, you may be fearful that you have so violated God that God is not going to accept you. You need to know, as the first blessing of conversion, God who knows everything and has searched your mind entirely, knows every wrong thing that you have said, that God is willing to pardon that mountain of sin. He's willing to take away that sin. He's willing to cast it as far as the east is from the west. What is forgiveness exactly? Forgiveness, aphesis in Greek, is a commercial term. It's a money term. It's an accounting term, in a sense, a term that comes from the business world. It has to do with someone who is bound by the obligation to pay a debt, even legally, and then someone releases them from that obligation. They didn't make the payment They couldn't make the payment, but the one who is owed the money, who could demand the payment, says, I'm going to release you. If you borrowed $5,000 and you can't repay any of it, and the person, rather than demanding you pay back the $5,000, decides it'll be my loss, I'm going to free you. I'm losing the $5,000 because I gave it to you, now I expected to get it back, and now you can't give it back, so who's the one who loses it? I lose it, right, because I lent it, but I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to release the debt. The one who suffers, in that sense, is the one who was wronged. We wronged God. He takes that loss upon himself, you see, and he offers full pardon to us. The word debts in the Lord's Prayer, athelma, means simply that. We are indebted to God. We owe God. Some of you owe credit card companies, right? Amen? You owe credit card companies. You owe banks your mortgage. You owe God much, much, much more. When the Bible speaks of debt towards God, it's talking about how breaking God's law has made us liable to the courts of heaven, leading to eternal, eternal payment that has to be made. Why are people thrown into hell? Hell is a kind of like a prison for all eternity where they will pay and pay and pay, and they will never pay enough. They'll never be able to pay back God, and so they're never released. God is is willing to pardon all your sins, but you have to meet the qualifications. You have to feel the sting of sin. You need to sense that you're lost. You need to come to the Lord in repentance. Then he'll be willing to pardon. Listen, a lot of times people think that because God forgives sins that he excuses sin, that he doesn't think sin is a big deal. That's not true. In Exodus 34, 7, when God was declaring his own glory, he said, God is the one who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. There's going to be punishment for the guilty. So all of us are guilty, obviously we have to be made unguilty and forgiven. Sins must be, listen, sins must be forgiven or they must be paid. When one is convicted of sin, then he must repent of personal sin, not thinking about anybody else, not blaming God for how their life turned out, not saying, God, half of this is your fault because of the bad circumstances of my life, but just humbly asking, God, would you please, as your word says, release me from my debt, my entire debt. The debt that we owe God for sin is beyond anything we could pay in a hundred thousand lifetimes. Every moment of every single day that we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are sinning. And that's every day. And by sinning, we're adding to our debt. The longer you live, the more debt you have. Every time something, some provision that has happened to us has been given to us and we withhold heartfelt thanks from God, we sin. Every time we congratulate ourselves rather than giving glory to God, we sin. Every impure thought, every spiteful thought towards another person, we sin. Every crass word we participate in, we sin. Every selfish impulse we have, we sin. Every resistance to what the Bible is teaching us, we sin. We violate God's will for our lives. We violate his moral standards. In Romans 2, it says, because of your stubbornness, listen to that, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, What's happening to people like that that won't repent? They are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The judgment hasn't fallen yet. It's coming. What are you doing in the meantime when you don't respond? You're, you're making a deposit, a deeper and deeper debt that you owe God so that when his wrath falls, yours will be, yours will be even worse. That's what you're doing by holding back and waiting. Your debt is getting bigger. We desperately need God's forgiveness. You desperately need God to forgive you of your sins. Boy, Satan loves to work in so many ways to get our mind to think wrong here. Psychologists regularly give foolish advice. They say, you need to learn to forgive yourself. Listen to me. You cannot forgive yourself. Because you do not owe yourself a debt. Such a thought is dishonoring to God. It's a lie. You kind of endorsed yourself as a kind of a God. Like you made yourself and you owe yourself something. You don't owe yourself anything. You don't even make yourself. You don't even exist except that God keeps you alive. You're his creature. You're his creator. It's not your holy standards that were violated. You owe God the debt. This awesome and glorious God in the heavens, this master of the universe, if you could see him sitting on his throne and realize he knows you and that you have offended him, you'd be so quick to ask for forgiveness. And Jesus is the only one who can provide forgiveness for you. The only one.
0: Forgiveness of sins may be something that some take for granted, but as we learn today, it's not given to us without a cost. Jesus paid our debt in full when he died on the cross for our sins. Without his sacrifice, we would still be faced with a debt we could never pay. If you're a true believer in Christ, then you have much to be thankful for. Never forget the price that was paid so that your sins could be forgiven. If you enjoyed today's message on Discover Hope, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. That's 443 hope We'd also like to ask you to prayerfully consider donating to this ministry to help us expand the reach of the gospel. You can give securely online at hopebible.org. Do you live in the area of Columbia, Maryland? If so, you're invited to become part of our Sunday morning gatherings here at Hope Bible Church. Join us for a morning of Bible study, worship, and fellowship. Find out more by visiting our website. Again, that's hopebible.org. As wonderful as it is to receive the forgiveness of sins, it's not the only benefit of conversion that we receive from God. As if it weren't enough to be saved from eternal damnation, God in His grace towards us also gives all those who believe in Him His Holy Spirit to live in us. Join us next time on Discover Hope as Pastor Tom continues to teach us about the benefits of conversion and especially the Holy Spirit living in us. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting hopebiblechurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope.